It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Here we are. Welcome to the Anglo Italian Pod in. Another special episode with a big interview for mm. you listeners. As always, my name is Rory. Welcome to the Anglo-Italian pod. And I'm joined by my very good friend, Adam. So this episode, Rory, was fascinating because we got to learn about a really classic individual who's got a lot of memories from a lot of different clubs at a lot of different levels as well, wasn't it? A lot of different he, levels. He has been everywhere so this is the start of a series that we're doing listeners slash viewers um called away from home and it's about Mm -hmm. managers or players that have taken their trade to other parts of the world they've broadened their horizons they've spread the english culture abroad and they've come back (laughs) to the dailers of tales of their travels now adam i'm gonna ask you as a clue for this interview if you think of iconic management moments in the premier league what Mm -hmm. comes to mind I think you have to think about Kevin Keegan when he says, I'd love it, I'd love it if we do it over. That's a big one. And then you had the classic Van Gaal, I think, falling over, making an arse of himself. I mean, yeah. And then obviously, for me personally, maybe not so much for you, but Arsene Wenger being forced onto the (laughs) old Tradford background, that that photo (laughs) with the fans around him, just iconic. It's like a Caravaggio paint in that picture. It's unbelievable. (laughs) Well, we have a manager who has provided one of the most iconic Premier League moments. Guys, if I say the name Jimmy Bullard, you already know who is coming up. We are delighted to say we have had the legend that is Phil Brown come onto the show. It was a fascinating interview. He was such a nice guy, super generous with his time. We talked about his time at Bolton. We talked about working with Big Sam. We talked about Hull. Of course, we talked about Jimmy Bullard. We talked about his time at South End and now his work that he's doing in India and his coaching abroad. It was a fascinating interview, I think. Adam, what did you make of it? Get the ex- get the listeners excited. Yeah, I, I have to say I was taken a bit aback by his openness. I think the warmth that we got from him was incredible mm-hmm. because... 
I don't think we've had anyone as willing to kind of support us, which no, was no, no. like eye-opening for us, I think. Um, but genuinely, he's got a story to tell. I, mm -hmm. I think it's everything that he talks about, he went into detail, could have gone on forever. Uh, you know, he's been incredible as a guest. So I'm not going to spoil it. You have to listen to it. And some of the things he comes out with, just beautiful. And thank you, Rory, for including a Wiccan Wanderers question into that mix because I, I did make sure you I... took that quite nicely. I did make sure you... <laughs> I made sure I got it in there for you, mate. I made sure I got thank it in you. there for you. So, viewers, listeners, enjoy Mr. Phil Brown. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome listeners and viewers to our Away From Home series, interviewing players and managers who have managed and played abroad. This week we are joined by a huge guest who we are very excited about. From Hartlepool to Hyderabad, from working with Big Sam at Bolton <laughs> to taking all into the big time, we are delighted to introduce Phil Brown. Welcome to the show, Phil. How are you today? I'm great. Um, it was a nice introduction when you said from Hartlepool to Hyderabad. You don't realise, do you? I've, um, I've been thinking long and hard to do a book. Um, I've been you know, offered a couple of occasions back in the day as well as, well as now. Uh, and from South End, South Shields to South End, I was thinking that. But Hartlepool to Hyderabad's got a ring to it. I like it, right? I like it. It sounds good. It sounds good. Um well, thanks for coming on to the show. Where are you calling us from at the moment? I'm in Mumbai. Uh, I'm based um, as part... Of, I'm working for IMG Reliance, and uh, we're doing the production of the um, ISL Season 9. Um, that's the brief overlay of what I'm doing. Uh, I'm working on a, a daily basis. You know, They've got a, a system over here that was born out of the, um, the pandemic, strangely enough, a couple of years back. I was stuck in a hotel in Goa, uh, having managed in Pune City and then managed at Hyderabad. And uh, I eventually did the um, the production meeting, of uh, the, the production side of it, you know. So obviously TV and uh, expert analyst, co-commentator, all of the things that you have to do um, just to cover the um, the football. And um, it's nice to be known as an expert. You know, I, I, I'd laugh at that, you know. It's a great word, but... Um, I laugh at that, but as I was talking to you earlier off air, I'm just writing down the history of my career. And I, I've only got to Swindon so far. I've not even included uh, the Indian side of things. And I'm looking at how far, um, you know, far and wide I've, I've come and the experiences at different clubs. And and it's not just um, it's not just football, it's people, you know. When you, um, when, when you take on a club, you actually, as a supporter, Back in the day before I came into professional football, you take on um, the mantle or you try to impose yourself on the people of that area, you know. And I think of the success stories that I've had during my time as a, a coach or a manager or a player, um, it's always because I've been 
I've been relative to the people on the terraces. You know, I've been understanding what it what it takes for them to be on the terraces. You know, hard a hard day's work, a hard week's work, and then they give football clubs their money. And the next thing you know, they're on the terraces cheering the team on, or not, whichever the case may be. And if they're cheering the team on, it's because they're successful. And if they're not cheering the team on, it's because you're not probably trying hard enough, you know. So all the way through the success that I've had in, in, in my career, in my life in football, has been down to the understanding of the supporter. I think that's that's beautiful to hear, because I think it's something now that, like, with the Super League in the last couple of years and that kind of raising its head across Europe, I think a lot of fans feel like they're being forgotten. Do you think that there's a lot of clubs now that are trying to switch their focus back towards the fans and kind of get that connection back? Because it feels like something's been lost. Well, you, you can try to switch and um, it'll be, it would be not not genuine. It's not it's not for me. You know, it's like you're talking about the, the Manchester United of this world. Um who are, you know, owners, ownership has been taking lots of money out of the game, lots of money out of Manchester United, lots of money out of supporters' pockets. And uh, I know I shouldn't be talking like this, but at the same time, why not? You know, because at the end of the day, that's that's the business end of the game. That's where the money's being made and and, um, and that's where the big books people lie. And, and if they make wrong decisions, it's great to see average Joe on the terraces and it's not just Joe, you know, it's man, woman and child nowadays. It's generations of um, of supporters who are standing and fighting against the owners who might be multi-billionaires, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't count for nothing unless you are genuine, unless you are honest with the support on the terrace and not try and pull the wool over the eyes. And I think that's, you know, football might have gone political, um, but it's always been political, you know, the... the where FIFA's concerned, where UEFA's concerned, where the World Cup just had a great, a great example of, of um, the negativity that was surrounding the World Cup before the World Cup started. And then all of a sudden, I'm finding myself watching the World Cup in India and the positivity surrounding it was born out of the fact that, one, supporters were travelling all over the world for to get to, um, to, get to see uh, the games in Qatar. And two... The football, the standard of football was fantastic. So it became such a positive. It became such a a wonderful. Um, the whole thing, you know, the the product itself. And I'm I'm now relative to the ISL. I'm talking about trying to raise the standard standards of Indian football. So nine years we've been going. I've only actually joined it in year in season five, which was at Pune, and uh, my pathway in Korea bringing me to India is, is is quite astonishing basically you know you're 59 year old and you decide to then come to India it's it's, it's quite it's quite a bizarre it's the it's the wrong way around if you know you know because if, you, if you're going to succeed in a country and you can say to your owners well I've actually worked abroad I know what it's like to walk into a change room where 18 of the 25 players haven't got a clue what you're saying. So you then have to learn a different language. What, what were the particular challenges? Because I think India is a country that is very football passionate, but hasn't really achieved much on the football stage. So what were the challenges that you immediately faced? And why do you think India has kind of underachieved relative to its size? Well, if you take, if you take 
Indian football back to the 50s and it was going, it was flying, it was it was off and running. And then all of a sudden the AIFF just completely and utterly about turn, turned their back on professional football, turned their back on women's football, turned their back on everything internationally and just closed the doors. And, and nobody had enough money to, to sort of prize them doors open. So it's been under the radar for 50 years. And then all of a sudden... The AIFF in the infinite wisdom, they see, obviously, there's lots of money to be to be earned, and I think that's the ultimate gain uh, down the line. Uh, but they also see a, a continent here that's 1.4 billion people um, that has a sort of a 95% ratio towards cricket. And then the other 5% are, are scrapping around for football, for badminton, for kabaddi, for you name it. It's just, it's ridiculous. So the balance needs to be shifted from a number perspective, numbers perspective, and football's worldwide phenomenon now. In you know, I'm talking about the Premier League. I'm talking about the the Bundesliga. I'm talking about La Liga. Everybody sees these these wonderful, well, the product itself, and then just over the water in Qatar, there's a World Cup. Now we we have uh, a chief executive officer in the ISL um, who was born and bred in Scotland and worked in at Sunderland Football Club, Martin Bain. And Martin knows for me um, how to get these things going. And he's he's already, you know, he's already embarked on a on a long-term strategy, a long-term plan to try and promote the the world of, of football in India to to get to an international stage. And you know, you're looking at maybe hosting World Cups. We've already hosted the under-17s World Cup, which which England actually won. Um Manchester City have now bought into Mumbai City, so now the City Group are in are in the ISL. You know, I know they're in twelve different clubs, but the City Group are here now, uh, and and lo and behold, Mumbai City, not with massive investment, just with a just with a plan of attack. Um, you know, the, the the global dominance that the City Group are trying to achieve um, is often running here, but they they're not one of the biggest budgets in the in the ISL this year. They're about third or fourth in the league, but they're winning the league. Mm-hmm. And their coach is now Des Buckingham. He's been headhunted by international um, New Zealand, uh, but he's turned them down and they've offered him a two-year deal extension. It's great to see that the product is improving year on year. But the long-term strategy, the long-term plan is to host or be involved in the World Cup down the way. Now, you know, Asia is a massive, massive continent. And um, it's a long-term plan. It's going to take probably three World Cups down the way. But lo and behold, Qatar hosted a World Cup. And consequently, because you host a World Cup, you're involved in it. They might have not achieved what they wanted to achieve, even win a game of football. But bottom line is they're investing. And that's what Indian are now doing. But the ISL needs to continue. It has to get to 10, 11, 12. And then Indian footballers will start to come through at an international level. Igor Stimak is the manager of, of the Indian national team. He's getting a little bit disillusioned. He's been here four years and he's not seen the progress that he wants to see. But seriously, the, the standard of Indian footballers is certainly improving since I've been here. That's for sure. Well, it's good to see because I think, as you said, Asia is a very competitive continent when it comes to like international qualification. You've got the South Korea, Japan, the Australias that are always like the powerhouses, and to see India come up and start trying to be like um, 
present on the international stage would be great. If you compare, like when you first came in, so you said you've been there, was it nine years you've been there now? If you compare no, the no, standard, four, four years. Right? If you compare the standard then to now, what are the biggest yeah. improvements that you've seen? The biggest improvements for me is the is the decision making uh, of Indian players in the final third. That's the biggest improvement. If you if you're thinking you can improve the fitness levels of Indian footballers, hold that thought. They were already massively on the scale of at the front end or the the, the business end of, of the game, um, better than the the foreign players. What they've done over the course of the last nine years, and I'm saying the ISL's been going for nine years. I've been here for four. What they've done is they've got better foreign players coming in. So in the early days, years one and two, you were paying copious amounts of money to players who were almost retired. Del Piero, people like that. Yeah. And they were 35, 36, coming for a last pay check, not contributing at all on and off the field of play I'm talking about now. But all of a sudden, you've now got this year... You've got players under 30-year-old, foreign players under 30-year-old who are who have played at a reasonable level, in, not just in Asia, in Europe, you know. So they're contributing now to a quality standard of, of football. They're also contributing, which I was trying to do at Pune City and Hyderabad. I wanted them to, to contribute off the field of play, meaning you're sitting in a hotel for 24 hours. You can only, you, in this weather, in this humidity, you can only train for an hour a day outside. So you, you're now inside they need to turn up at schools and, and talk to them about their, you know, how they became footballers, how they became professionals, and then invest their time, not their money, just invest their time into the youth settlement, the youth situ- situation. And once you've got that whole sort of holistic approach from a foreign perspective coming into India, you're getting buy-in, 100%. Nice. I love it. I love it. I can see how like, passionate you are about this project. and It seems like... Um, it's something that I'm becoming more and more conscious of is like Indian football and the Indian Super League. And I remember players like Freddie Lundberg <laughs> went over there. And That's it, right. It, it kind of felt like the Chinese Super League thing that it was like the bubble was going to burst at some point. But it feels like it's had a kind of reset and it's kind of growing, as you said, holistically, which is great to see. Um, but we're going to kind of go right back to the beginning, Phil. We're going to talk about your career, okay? And we're going to start with your playing career. Um, so we always start with the same questions. How did you get into football? Who kind of encouraged your passion for football? And when did you realise that you could make a living out of it? Um, it's a great question. Uh, and, you know, encompassed by that last part. How did? When did you know you could make a living out of it? I served my time as an apprentice electrician um, at a, at a uh, factory called Pyrotechnics, who used to make uh, BICC, uh, British Insulated Calendar Cables, which was, you know, you put them in hotels, you put them in houses. When the house burns down, if it does do, it's always going to be there for the ring alarms and stuff like that. So it was ahead of the game. So we were making that, and uh, I became a, an electric qualified electrician when I was 20-year-old. On the same day I got my indenture forms, I signed a five-year deal at Hartlepool United. Now, I was a non-league player. I was I was Sunday league. I was non-league. I just played the game because I loved it. I had a couple of trials, one of them at Sunderland Football Club that um, was my club, and it was a dream come true just having a trial. Uh, but I was, I'd missed the boat. I was 18-year-old when I had the trial, and everybody that got taken on was 16-year-old. So it was an apprenticeship scheme, et cetera, et cetera. And now I'm not saying that because I was 18, I wasn't good enough. It was just that they wanted 16-year-olds. Anyway, long story short, 
Um, I carried on playing Sunday League football. I then signed a non-contract con. Uh, it's a it's a funny thing, but it's a non-contract agreement with Hartlepool United to play in their reserves. And um, I had a half a sniff of first team football because I used to go in there and, and train on a Tuesday night and a Thursday night. And then I got put on the bench one day, one game, and it was like I was still I was still an electrician. I couldn't believe what I was doing. So I then got a, a five year deal. And it was like, wow, this is, this is, I'm a pro footballer. I couldn't believe it. So from 20 to 25, I knew at least I was going to be a professional footballer for five years. And in them five years, I clocked up 220 appearances. So it was, once I was there, I had this mentality that I'm staying. Um, but I then, uh, unfortunately, I was a shop steward in, back in the day because you were the club captain. And I had to call a strike because we weren't getting paid. And that consequently, yeah, consequently, that was that was probably uh, the beginning of the end at Hartlepool United, and um, I eventually got a move to Halifax Town, and I, I think that first move just prepared me for the rest of of my footballing career. That first move got me into a different changing room, got me away from home, got me a a, a new sort of. Even though I was 25 year old, I was still wet behind the ears. It got me into an experienced way of life, how to live without my parents, without my this, that, and the other. Um, and it just prepared me for what I thought my biggest move was to Bolton Wanderers, because I'm not being disrespectful of Hartlepool and Halifax. When you talk about Bolton Wanderers and you talk about um, Nat Lofthouse, when you talk about Phil Neal managing, I'm going to the real world uh, of football, in my opinion. I'm going to a place where, well, my mother. My mother was the driving force where football was concerned. My father was the driving force where being a, an electrician was concerned. You know, so they were they were they had a plan of attack for me, but they disagreed. My dad okay. said, "No, no." My dad, my dad was saying, "No, I'll get a trade." My mum was saying, "No, no, 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 I'll be a footballer." You know, so I had both so sides of the. Both. So you did both. I, I take both boxes, I. But uh, I always remember travelling down the A Triple Six, the Devil's Highway, which is right next to Burnden Park. And as I'm driving down there, um, I landed in Bolton, didn't have a mobile phone then. Uh, just picked the phone up. My mother said, the one thing you make sure you do is you knock at Nat Lofthouse, Lofthouse's door and you go in and see him. You meet one of the greatest footballers. And I'm like, wow, the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. <laughs> but little old me, from I've, I've signed the contract. I've, I've spoke with Phil Neal. Uh, his assistant manager was Mick Brown, who... You know, work with Big Ron at Manchester United. This was this was big time for me. And then uh, I left uh, Phil Neal's office. I just said, just uh, uh, one thing. Where's Nat Lofthouse? And Phil Neal went. He's just down the corridor, two doors. And I said, you don't mind if I say hello? And Phil, Phil Neal was like, why do you want to speak to him? I said, well, my mother's told me to. I and need sure, to. <laughs> and sure enough, if my mother said it, I'm doing it. You know, <laughs> doesn't matter what my manager said. I've just signed a contract with you. I'm with you for the next three years. But uh, and I went in and met this fella, and he was Mister Bolton Wanderers, dear me. And uh, well, it's, it's one of those players like alongside Stanley Matthews. It's like one of the greats of English football, right? He's one of those names that who, everybody knows from what he achieved. Who used to work down the pits and then, mm-hmm. you know, leave the pit. Uh, pit head, so he was leaving the pit head and jumping on a bus and coming training. That was that was the real world in them days, and and that was more or less that was more or less what I was doing when I was at 
you know, I was, I was serving my time as an electrician, but I had to borrow my dad's car to, to get to training on a Tuesday and Thursday night. Um, and he was, he was, <laughs> he was delighted lending me the car that I could drive, but he was, it was a disaster that I was putting so many miles on the clock because he was losing value, you know, so. I can imagine. I we're a working imagine. class family, you know, we're working class people. And, you know, that's probably one of the main reasons why I made it. Mm, that's it. Having that work ethic is so important. Having the kind of the, the the drive within you. So, so joining a club like Bolton, as you said, with like a club with a lot of history, a big club. I think a club that at the time um, and even now is kind of lower than it should have been. Um, and you would be there when they got a little bit higher. We'll get onto that. But how was it to join a big club with so much history? And this is where you kind of had your first taste of success. I'm going to say is you lifted what is now the Papa John's Trophy, was the LDV Vans, etc. Yeah. Trophy. How was it to kind of lift silverware with Bolton as well? It's a very well-supported club, right? Well, when when I first arrived, we just got promoted from um, from the second division to the first division, and um, and it was one of them where the journey had begun. You know, um, Robbie Savage scored a goal. I think it was Robbie Savage. It's not not Bob. Not, not that one. Yeah. I'm talking, Robbie Savage, the scout, scout lad, he scored a goal at Wrexham um, to win the last game of the season, and then consequently got got the club promoted. And then when I arrived, I've gone into a change room just full of leaders, full of full of characters, and. Um, and I, I'd always been a captain. I'd been a captain from being 22 year old, and I'd captained Hartlepool United and then Halifax for three years. And I'm coming to this club, and I'm thinking, well, ooh, what happens where the captaincy is concerned? I, w- I was wondering what Phil Neal was going to do, and he gave the captaincy to Mark Kim, who had, you know, centre half, and he played along uh, a lot of a lot of his career. He played at, at Bolton, um, came from non-league football, but he gave it to Kim in uh, no problem. I'm getting on with this, like, because I'm in a big club. I'm I'm happy with the move itself. And Kami broke his leg two games, two games in, and it was Chester away. I'll never forget it. And at half time, I turned to Phil Neal, and he clearly forgot that his captain was lying on a on a stretcher. So I just said to Phil Neal, I said, "Who's going to take the team out?" And Phil Neal didn't say anything. Mick Brown said, "Well, you ask the question, you take the team out." So I took the team out. I took the team out at half time in that game. And never looked back. Consequently, when I was walking up the stairs uh, at Wembley, I had some leaders, like I say, in in the change room. But I made sure Mark came, even though he was still he was still on crutches. That's how bad the break was. Um, Mark came, walked up the stairs with me because uh, he was the club captain. Simple as that, you know. So that wasn't Phil Neal driven. That was Phil Brown driven, and, and that's probably when I started making big decisions. You know, probably outside the realms of my remit, probably. Um, you know, I wasn't waiting for Phil Neal to say anything. I wasn't waiting for Mick Brown to say anything. I'm just, I'd say a teammate who's unfortunately broke his leg a game and a half into the season. And I'm saying, come on, Kami, you're the club captain. You pick the cup up. And uh, I was willing to actually give that moment away, but we did it together. Um, so so it was a brilliant, it was a brilliant moment to... To beat Torquay in eight and four one, even though we went one nil down and it was a nervous time, but we we won the game four one, and uh, I just I remember it as if it was yesterday. Honestly, Rory, it was a fantastic day, and it was um I just it was the start of a I don't know it's the start of a a dream uh, where Bolton was concerned. Rightly so, you said they've sort of now in the in the realms of underachieving or now lower than what 
they should have been. When I joined a club in the second division, I left the club in Europe. Yeah, well, yeah exactly. And, it's, the Bolton story is crazy, and I think it's a club that, like, uh, sometimes I'll go back and look at, like, Premier League years and just watch them. And that team that you were assistant manager at on, uh, with Big Sam, that's yeah. one of my favourite teams to go back and look at. And we can kind of jump forward a little bit, but some of the players you got to go to Monterey's, like if we talk about Fernando Hierro, Yuri Jorkaev, JJ Okocha, Vincent Candela, um, these are like World Cup winners, European Cup winners. These are players that kind of played at the top level of football. And without being disrespectful to Bolton, to get them to play at a club like Bolton and the football you were playing at the time... I really enjoy watching it, despite being an Arsenal fan, and we always found it difficult against Bolton. It was really enjoyable. Like, how did you get those? Like working with Big Sam, how did you both get those players to join, and what what did you get them to believe in in order for them to come? You got it. I'm taking a step back from that, you know, because assistant manager. Absolutely, um, we worked very well together. It was a great team. Great. Um, we dovetailed so well. His strengths were my weaknesses. My weaknesses were his strength. You know, like that type of thing. Sorry, I've, I've mixed them words up. But, you know, strength, weakness, weakness, strength, you know. Um, and we worked so well together. Um, but I've got to say it, he was the um, he was the catalyst for bringing them players to the football club, along with a lot of uh, investment. Uh, but then we had to mould them into a, into a team. And, you know, you mentioned some great players there. It was It was just quite... Phenomenal! What was attractive about it? One, one, it has to be Premier League football, first and foremost. Secondly, the Reebok Stadium. Thirdly, we had a training ground at Exton, um, which we started moving in the right direction. Every time, every time Sam or Bolton sold a player, Sam didn't go ask for the money. Sam, you know, when you sell Klaus Jensen for three point five million to Charlton. He didn't ask for the 3.5 million. Sammy starts for, give me 100 grand just to improve the training ground up, improve the facility, mm-hmm. improve the facility that the players that are left behind, and basically that's what he was saying to the owners, these players are left behind, he's moved on to better things. Well, they hadn't moved on to better things. They'd just got 3.5 million and he'd gone to Charlton. Bolton were a better thing. In our opinion, we were a better thing. So we just kept on improving. Alan Thompson, you know, he went to Aston Villa for 4 million. 125 grand to do the changing rooms up. You know, all of these, Ada Good Johnson, this was in the day when we had developed, we had evolved. You know, if you think about, we brought Alan Thompson from Newcastle United. He had broke his neck at 17 year old in a car accident. And the doctor said to him, You'll never play professional football. We take a chance on him, pay 100 grand compensation in Newcastle saying we'll take a chance on him. Because we knew we had all the facilities to actually work with these guys, you know. Sam had this last year in his playing career in America and he stumbled upon the fact that he wanted, when he managed, he wanted one coach per player. So you've got a 25-man squad. He wanted 25 coaches. Now, it wouldn't be 25 football coaches. It would be, and Rory, this is a true story. We used to have a menu on the tables in the canteen at the training ground. We had a menu. So on a day off, players would come in. And on that menu, it wouldn't be food. It would be Tai Chi. It would be yoga. It would be psychology. It would be, you know, video session. It would be um, just strength strength and conditioning work, stretching. We had all these lists of of things that players could just come in and just say, oh, fancy Tai Chi today. And it would be a one-on-one. 
So we had a coach for every every player, and that was Sam ticking the box that he uh, that he actually picked up in America. Great, honestly, fantastic. But you haven't mentioned Ivan Campo. You haven't mentioned <laughs> St- Stelios Giannakopoulos. I mean, Stelios had won seven titles in Greece, mm-hmm. and we managed to get him to come to, to England. A lot to do with finances. Don't get me wrong. No, I really, I really enjoy going back and looking at like watching that Bolton team, and like as you said, getting them into Europe. Like how. How did that feel? Because that's obviously the, that's the highest the club has been before or since, really. I think. Like, how did it feel during that season? So I was looking at some of the results that you got along the way, and I think that season you beat Manchester United away. I want to say I'm just finding the season two, now. Two one. Yeah, you beat Manchester United um, and beat Spurs and Chelsea away as well. I think like you did get some big results away against the big teams. What do you think it was about Bolton that made it so difficult for the big teams? The big teams we were the, we were, weren't fashionable. We were underdogs. Um, we were underestimated big time. I mean, I always remember um, uh, a comment came out on Match of the Day that we play terrible football. We go you know, back to front and we do this and we do that. And we're thinking, you can say what you want about us. We, we just had thick skin. You can say what you want about us. We've got Yuri York here up front. I mean, we're, we're going to go route one. No, we're going to go into Kevin Davies. And our starting point was from Kevin Davies. Whereas the modern day game, the starting point's the goalkeeper. If you, if you even look, seriously, if you look at the Manchester United win when we beat United 2-1 at Old Trafford, I can tell you, I can tell you the week's preparation there. It was so unorthodox, it was scary. We had actually gone to the, to the lakes. We'd gone to Lake Windermere for three days and it was um, just team building. Didn't touch your football. Did not touch your football. It was team building. We did something called um, toilet racing. We did gill, gill scrambling. We did a uh, little bit of um, uh, paintball, yes. We did uh, uh, an outward bounds uh, crossword. I, I, I could tell you some of the stuff that we did, but that was in three days. And Sam was, on a, Sam was in the car, I was on the team bus coming back home. And I said to, uh, I picked the phone up to him. I said, listen, Gaffer. I said, we're playing United on, on Saturday. And these players are tired. We've had three days in Lake Windermere. They're tired. Brownie, give them Thursday off. Tell them to be at uh, the Reebok Stadium on Friday afternoon. We'll do a little session with regards to how we're going to play at Manchester United. And we're going to Old Trafford. And that was it. That was the plan for going to Old Trafford. Juicy Jaskalainen catches a ball. Kevin, Kevin Nolan scored in the first half which was an equaliser, I think, um, oh, what was the South American they had in the middle of the park? He scored a great free kick. Uh, can't, think, can't think of his name. Great, great player. Um, so anyway, long story short, Juicy Jaskalainen catches the ball in the 82nd minute. And we're thinking, crosses were coming into our box like windscreen wipers. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right windscreen wipe. Juicy catches the ball. And we're thinking, just land on it. Kill the game, kill the Stretford end, kill everybody, just land on it and, and just put the goons to sleep, as it were. He only bounced it twice, kicked it straight down the field because he spotted a one-on-one. Michael Ricketts against Wes Brown. Wes Brown tries to take it down on his chest. Michael Ricketts dispossesses him, sticks the ball past Fabian Bartes. We win the game 2-1 and we've been to Lake Windermere for three days. Did about did about forty five minutes preparation for the win that game, so that's that just shows you we were just a little bit different from anybody else. 
That's it. I feel like at the time it felt like Sam Allardyce was this kind of a manager who was a bit ahead of his time, a bit alternative. He was using this like kind of a lot of analytics, a lot of science, a lot of like technology to try and get those marginal gains that are now like people talk about it all the time in football now, marginal gains and managers trying to get those little advantages. It felt like Sam Allardyce was at the time kind of pushing the frontier of that. But you've mentioned another player there who I absolutely loved growing up was uh, UC Eskalainen. What a goalkeeper he was. I was always amazed, again, not being rude to Bolton, that he never got a bigger club coming into him. He always seemed like an outstanding goalkeeper. Like, how how good was he to see train and, like, have him in your team? He felt so reliable. Juicy came, um, Juicy came earlier than, than mm-hmm. Sam, and it was in my tenure with Colin Todd. It was my first spell. Um we, you know, I'd, I'd left Blackpool. Me and Sam had worked together at Blackpool. And then I worked with Colin Todd for a couple of years and we got promoted out of sight and then we got relegated and then Colin resigned. Uh, so then Sam got the job because I, I had five or six games as caretaker manager and I had a decent record. I had an 80% win ratio. So I was expecting to get the job. When I didn't get the job, Sam walks through the door. We'd worked together already. So... It was one of them where we just trusted each other. We understood each other, you know. And so when Sam said, Brownie, I don't want you to underestimate or undermine the situation. If you apply for every job that comes along, that ain't good enough for me. Um, if you want to work with me now as a, an assistant manager, um, all well and good. Put me down on your CV as a reference so that when anybody comes for a referee, they want a, a, a recommendation. I'll know when you're applying for jobs. So that, that that remained strong, you know. So the relationship stayed the same when it were first started off at Blackpool. So consequently, when we when we were doing all this, uh, we just started dovetailing again. We worked together again. And, and you're talking about marginal gains, you know. We were nicking a percent here and a percent there. Back in the day, you know, we were probably 5% and 10%, you know, you know with, when we were measuring everything. We had ProZone, we took ProZone to version, from version 1 to version 2, version 3, you know, so we blew them out the water because of what we were trying to do. The sports science side, the video technology side, we just got experts in in every field. Psychology was a big, big thing uh, where me and Sam used to play with it at Blackpool with, with words on flip charts and stuff like that. But then we got a company from Preston, um, Advanced Performance it was called, and uh, we took them to the next level. Don't get me wrong; they took us to the next level as well. But we just, we were just pinching ideas off each other, and, and we just used them to the best of our ability. He was way, way ahead of the game. So consequently, when you get to Europe, um, you think, how far can you take the club? We, when we missed out on the playoffs the first year round, and then we got promoted through the playoffs, and we beat Preston uh, at, um, at, in Cardiff. We beat them three-one. And then we got promoted to the Premier League. It was all about surviving that first year. The second year was going to take care of itself. And then third year came along. Then a fourth year came along. We were getting bored with survival. We were like looking at 1.5 points per game. We were trying to get to 1.5 points per game. Because if you get 1.5 points per game, you're going to get to 65 points, 68 points. You're not at the door then of seven places, which was if anybody at the top end was going to win an FA Cup, which invariably they would do. Then the seventh place became a European qualification place. So that's how that's how it all worked. But where Juicy was concerned, Juicy was sort of ahead of ahead of Sam. But then he, he just bought into everything, you know. 
And the one thing about Juicy, I think he had 13 years at the football club. We eventually brought in a, another goalkeeper called Ali Alabsi. And, um, another good and hit, keeper, another very good keeper, I think. Yeah. Top draw, and, and we yeah. we'd we'd gone all over the world for to try and get another good keeper in. And when Ali Alapsi came, um, he was sort of he was like juicy. What was 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 ten years ago? Big stature, commanding presence. Wanted to just wanted to grow, wanted to learn, wanted to just evolve. You know, and and that's that's the best word you can actually say about Bolton Wonders. We evolved together. But when we pinnacled, when we when we reached the peak and pinnacled out, as it were, 2005, I was ready for working as a first team. Man- I wanted to be a manager. Um, I think Neil McDonald wanted to advance from being first team coach to assistant manager, and then consequently, when, when we both left, it, was, it wasn't a, a long time after that. Sam got the job at Newcastle. He got offered a, a job at a club to be all you know all well and good and brutally honest where Bolton was concerned, a bigger club. So he had to he had to some at some stage invest himself in a in a bigger situation when he took the Newcastle job. So within it was probably within six or seven months, all three of us left. I think, and then uh, uh, from there, Bolton kind of have ended up where they are now. It does feel like they're on their way up a little bit again, um, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. But when you leave Bolton, you then go on to take your first managerial job and this is at Preston North End. Now, this no, is a, Derby, uh, no, sorry, Derby, Derby County. County. Sorry, it's a Derby yeah. County. Now, this is a club that now is in an absolute terrible state. At the time, how was it to take on your first job as a manager? Uh, the season looked like a very difficult season. What did you learn from that experience? The sales pitch, Rory, from the the, the board was, was magnificent, nothing short of Brilliant. Um, they sold the whole concept and idea on me. Um, for me to take my first opportunity, it was going to have to be right. You know, I'm taking all the advice from everybody that, I, you know, Sam, Sam in particular. Um, at some stage, I'd been, I knocked at the door, uh, finished second where West Brom were concerned. Brian Robson got the job. I knocked at the door uh, at Burnley. And um, who got the job? Burnley. Steve Cottrell got the job. And then the third one I applied for was, was Derby County. And it was just a club that, you know, you're looking at the days gone by with Brian Clough and the history of Derby County. It was just a great football club and a great challenge for me. They had sold Seth Johnson for £7 million and reinvested that £7 million into a training ground. So they had more farm, fabulous complex, way ahead of the game. And when I walked into it after George Burley, um, I just couldn't believe... This was a project. This, this, this was. It had all the facilities. It had all the the supporters were magnificent, but the directors were all over the place. And I mean, uh, when I got the sack, and it was literally, it was literally eight months into my tenure. Um, it was only it was only about three or four weeks later that three the three of the directors got arrested and put in jail for fraud, and that's what I was dealing with. And that's, I, I was hoping upon hopes how honest I was would come out because not once did I get interviewed by police. Right. Not, one, not once did I get, um, you know, dragged into the cells or dragged into a, a, an interview situation uh, by any of the authorities. When these three got arrested, I just thought Derby County, player, eh, Derby County players, Derby County supporters would understand how difficult it was. It was absolutely untenable. But what a learning curve. I could not have done what I did 
at Hull City, at Preston, at you know, keep on going on and on and on. I couldn't have done any of them managerial challenges that I had unless I had that steep learning curve. And it was, it was a really steep curve. I wish, I wish it had been the other way around that they had got arrested before I got the sack. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. and then, then the Derby fans, I would have had some empathy from them. And all it would have been was we have to survive in the championship and then we can plan properly. You know, because people, money would take money was getting taken out of the football club. I couldn't move, I couldn't breathe, I couldn't you name it. But it would have been I I honestly think it would have been the same story as what I inherited at Hull City at Derby County uh, the year before. The Hull City one was survival in the championship, and then all of a sudden we got promoted to the Premier League. I honestly thought Derby could have been that club. Well, there are clubs that they've been. It's been an absolute chaos at that club for years. Again, it's another club. There's a few of them now where it feels like they've got new owners. There's starting to be a bit of promise. But I think there's been a lot of managers that went to that club and just got completely lost. A lot of players as well because it was just being so so mismanaged. But you do get the move to Hull, and this is like I think where you start to make your name as a manager, where people start to see you as like not. Big Sam's assistant, but as a manager, and you get Hull promoted to the Premier League. Dean Windass being absolutely huge in this, scoring the goal to keep Hull in the Championship at first, and then scoring the goal to get them promoted. How great was it to work with someone like Dean Windass? Obviously, playing for his boyhood club, he's someone that I think everybody loves. He seems so lovable every time I see him. On an interview. He is. He is a very lovable guy. Um... He's, he's everybody's best mate. That's his biggest problem off the field of play, you know, because he used to get involved with people, you know, and, yeah. and, and at the wrong times, as it were. But the, the best thing about Dean Windus was Nicky Barmby. Um, he had a fellow legend in the in the change room that, you know, carried as much weight as what Dino did. Different characters, totally, totally different characters, but all they both had the same amount of feel uh, and vibe for the, for the football club. So, consequently... When Dino was in the change room, if he stepped out of line, Nicky would Nicky would step across him. You know, he would. You can't do that. You know, you can't. You know, it, it was great because it was self managing that part of it. But he was a capable player. Um, I always remember the first time I met him, uh, Medici's restaurant in in North Ferby, where I was living, and um, he was coming across from Bradford. Bradford had had enough of him. You know, his antics, as it were. Uh, and I just said to Dean, I said, listen, we've got to keep this quiet because it's big news. Even though you're 35, 36 years old, we've got to keep this quiet. Um, the funniest part of it was, and if it gets out, Dean, I'm not doing anything. I'm not saying anything. By the time I'd met him, which was only about three three quarters of an hour later, it was all over the papers. It was all <laughs> it was all over the media, all over the place. And he was denying everything. And I know for a fact it was him. But, uh, but I just got, I got swooned by him, his missus, his family. Um, you know, they all lived in the whole city area and they all supported uh, the Tigers through and through. Um, but like, I, I keep going back to it was self it was self policing the changing room because Ian Ashby, um, who had captained the football club through all four divisions, um, he was a legend um, in the in the changing room, and again a legend in the area. Nicky Barmby, as I say, and then Dean Winder. So it was people that were playing for the club that wore the shirt with pride, and everybody. Just followed, followed on. You know, they set such an example of what pride, how how important pride is for the play. You know, we can all get fit, and we've all got a better team. We've all got this, 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 and this. But if you've got pride in the shirt before you even step across the white line, you've got to have a chance. 
And you, and you brought in some players at Hull that you'd worked with previously. So I think JJ Acocha was there, Pedersen, who you'd worked with at Bolton as well. Like, how important is it or how useful is it to bring in players that know you and you know already? Like, how how big is that? I think it's important for, for identity, albeit um, JJ and, and Henrik Pedersen would have certainly... Uh, looked at the situation and seen a different person. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm flying the flag as a number two at uh, Bolton Wanderers when I was working with them. And so, yeah, your coach, your best mate, yeah, yeah, this, that and the other. But if you look at that final and you look at the bench, uh, them two players were sitting on the, on the bench with suits on, you know, so they weren't even on the bench. They weren't even contributing to that game. Um, and that's where you have to be not the best mate, you know. You, you, your role as a coach is totally different uh, than the role of a manager. Uh, but great guys, uh, contributed immensely. I'll never forget the JJ Kocha interview uh, when he first signed. Uh, I went from one man and a dog at a, a press conference to 44 camera crews came. 44 camera crews. I was counting them as I was going in, and they were, <laughs> they were looking at me in this press conference. And I'm, they're going, what are you doing? I said, I'm counting the cameras. I count the people here. It's normally one man and a dog, and that's the impact that this guy's going to have. Yeah, Let's hope yeah. he has the same impact from a football perspective, but this was an image perspective. And he just blew the place apart. And that that was the one thing that I said to me chairman, um, Paul Duffin at the time. I said, um, whatever you're doing this afternoon, just come down to the press conference. And he went, what are you on about? I said, be on the top table, announce that we've signed JJ Kocha, but come down and you have a look at the difference. And it was, it was just exposure. They were from all over the world, Africa, um, you know, the Europe. They were, everybody wanted to know who's JJ Kocha signed for Old City. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, it's a player, I can't believe we didn't talk, talk about him when we were talking about Bolton, but what a player and the, the skills that he would come out with, like on the pitch... It was incredible. Like on the training pitch, how instantaneous did you see? Like this guy is special because he was like the ultimate entertainer. His whole persona um, for me was down to the fact that he had a he had a great smile. He had a great smile, and yes, he played for PSG. And I've, you know, watched him two or three times. I remember going up the Rangers watching PSG, and from a distance, you could see this front three and the movement and the and the ability. But he didn't get up close and personal with JJ. When you saw him on the training ground and saw what he could do, oh my God. I mean, I've many a time described it, put yourself in a small room and 10 people try and get the ball off him. You couldn't get the ball off him. He was just phenomenal what he could do with the ball. And it was all pure invention. It was all in his head. Um, but when he first signed for Bolton Wanderers, uh, we got beaten the very first game. I think it was, it was either Fulham or QPR. And uh, it was down in London, and we were something like 3 0 down or 4 0 down in half time. And JJ had started, and Bernard Mendy had started, and, and Sam took both of them off at half time. And he turned to me, and many a time he'd, he'd just say one liner in the second half, and it'll be on a touchline, it'll be private, it doesn't get any more private than that. That is like a marriage, you know? So, yeah, and he just, I remember him saying it. He said a couple of things that would come, oh, you know, don't ever remind me on never to play him centre half. Right, so that that's that's one thing. But he said he said it about JJ and, and Bernard Mendy. Whenever we sign players now, never in a million years do they make their debut the first game. They sit and watch first. They sit and watch because everybody yeah. watches Premier League football on the TV, on wherever. Everybody watches Premier League football 
and they think, oh, I can play that, I can play that, I can play that. Then when you get up, up close and personal, you see the difference in the pace. It was just phenomenal. So we pulled them two off in half time and, and they sat down on the bench and watched two or three games. Then JJ, then Bernard Mendy, and then all of a sudden they got up to speed that way. But JJ lost his smile in the first six or seven games and we were trying to find out why, what what was this all about? And, and that was the moment that we decided that the club needed uh, a player liaison officer because albeit you're, you're training with them on a daily basis and you're, you're eating with them, you know, breakfast, canteen, uh, lunch, et cetera, et cetera. They're not going to tell you everything, you know, because the personal stuff they keep to themselves. And JJ's smile had gone and it was, it was down to the fact that his kids hadn't come across and his wife hadn't come across. So he's going back to a lovely bed, lovely house. Fantastic. We're all saying, what's, what's wrong with him? He's got a six-bedroom house, the size of it and this, that, and that. He was going back, sitting in an empty room, looking at a TV screen with no family around him. So that's, that would be a player liaison officer's way of finding out, taking him back home, finding out what he needed. And JJ, albeit he could speak English, you know, all his, all his belongings were in Paris or they were in Nigeria. So we got this player liaison officer to get banking sorted, schools sorted, got his family over. Next thing you know, smile comes back to his face. Great player. I think that, again, is another part of, like, football fans often just expect footballers to arrive, click into gear, and if they've not scored in the first game, it's a failure. I think now we're starting to realise this kind of, again, using the word holistic, they're human yeah. beings that need their family and they need life around them. Like, I always remember Sergio Aguero in the Man City documentary. His life always seemed quite sad, and you could see, like, oh, he just needs, <coughs> even players like that need the outside is important as on the football pages. Rory, Rory, the point is, some of them do, some yeah. of them don't. You've got to work okay. them out. You know, you've got your El Hadj Dupes who are a little bit footloose and fancy free. You've got Mario Jardel. Mario Jardel came and joined us and again, he's a little bit loose upstairs and, you know, some of them need the family around them, some of them need security, others don't. You know, you've got to work that one out, you know. Mm-hmm. No, but at the end of the day, you just, at the end of the day, you just want to... At the end of the day, you just want to see the footballer. You want to see yeah. the good football. And we want Bolton Wonders fans to see it. So the product is out on the field of play, you know. But if we go back to Hull City, you get Hull City into the Premier League and you have a good few years there. Players like Giovanni, I remember scoring an incredible winner against Arsenal. That yeah. goal still kind of haunts me. Um, how did it... You got some really good finishes with Hull and it felt like at the time the club was really building something. What was... What was it like to, to have like the kind of a glory period for the club there to be so important? Well, we, we had ambition. We had a plan. Uh, and all of that was born out of my apprenticeship with Sam. Um, Sam was always about bigger picture. Um, and if you win games of football, you can build that bigger picture slowly but surely. But you have to keep that business head on um, when you get away from football. And, and that, that was something I was trying to, trying to do. The difference between me and Sam at the time, even though I was like 42, 43, when I decided to become that manager, um, which is, is fairly old, to tell you the truth, certainly where the modern day game's concerned, I still wanted to bring in somebody that had more experience than me. And what I mean by more experience, more experience in management. And when I brought in Brian Horton as my number two, and more importantly, and that's not being disrespectful of Nobby because Nobby knows what I'm talking about here. More importantly, Steve Parkin as a number three. Steve had 350 games under his belt as a manager. 
and he was coming in as a, a, a first-team coach. Nobby had a thousand games under his belt as a manager, so I'm obviously going to go to him. But it can't be a two-way conversation. When it's a three-way conversation, wow, you've got a two-on-one vote. You've got a two-on-one vote that sometimes was against me and I had to make big decisions <laughs> to either go with them guys and, and why wouldn't you? Because they're not going to they're not going to stitch you up. They're, they're honest guys, they're trustworthy guys and they've got more experience than me. So a lot of times they went against me and I had to bite me lip and bite me tongue. And uh, at the time, I don't think anybody around me who knew me very well would be, you bit your lip. You actually bit your lip. <laughs> so, uh, so there some great stories about Monday morning meetings, but uh, a lot of people around us at the time thinking we were falling out, but we weren't. We were just thrashing something out and we were vocal. We were verbal. We were aggressive with it. We were once described as uh, red caps by a psychologist. And if you wear a red cap, yeah, you're supposed to be fairly aggressive. We had three red caps in the back room. No, <laughs> we well, were. I think getting that, like, an atmosphere, no matter how, like, families argue, if you know what I mean, they're getting an atmosphere where people are challenging each other and asking, like, no, I think you're wrong, actually. And that's ah. where that you all push each other, right? Absolutely. Nice. So, with Hull, um, you did, there was rumours that you came very close to signing Michael Owen in 2009. Yeah. Is that something, how close was it? Um, and is that something that you you wish had happened? Are there any other players that you wish, that you got close to getting, that you wish you could have um, confirmed? Yeah, um, I'm not saying Mike alone would have been the answer uh, because we're probably talking about somebody who's, whose better days were behind him and therefore you're signing a striker that can stick the ball in the battle of the net. He'd probably show you that every day in training because he was. So, I've just watched a, a game and it must have been round about 2008, 2009 um, where he was playing for Manchester United and, and he scored the winning goal in the 4-3 derby match. And I'm looking at that going, wow. Yeah. Had he come off? Had he come off the bench? Was it a last minute winner? Because it was it was a ninety fifth minute winner. Yeah. But you saw the the prowess, you know, which was that of Michael Owen was a great finisher. Um, I tried to say um, Saul Campbell, um, but that um, I went to meet Saul, and strangely enough, Saul's been working um, in India doing the the World Cup, and uh, I went to one of the hotels just downtown in Mumbai. And um, I had a nice morning with him. You know, I had a cup of coffee with me, um, Igor Stimak, um, Paul Maysfield, who's working with me on the ISL. And and um, and Sol came round and had a, a coffee with us. And it was great to see because I was telling, I was saying to Igor Stimak, I was saying, I nearly signed him. And uh, and he said, well, why didn't you? I said, well, basically because he, he was wanting 50 grand a week. <laughs> Yeah, and well, I, he wasn't cheap, so he wasn't cheap. And I, did, I just didn't have it. I just didn't have it. You know? Well, I, I I did have it, but I, I would probably have to bring in three or four players for to get the fifty grand a week. But um, the big one that, and I'm going, I'm going to go back to the the uh, Brian Horton and Steve Parkin relationship. The biggest one that I think I missed, and uh, if you've heard this story, stop me. Um, we're nearly saying Bobby Zamora. Oh wow! And if. Um, when I signed Jimmy Bullard, and yeah, okay, that was probably in the history of Hull City, that was probably the unluckiest signing. And we can all be lucky and unlucky, but the unlucky, unluckiest signing. We were at West Ham on a Tuesday night, and Jimmy went down after 35 minutes. It was his first game for Hull City. He goes down after 35 minutes, and, and he snaps his cruciate. And um, you've just spent £5 million on him and given him a lot of money. 
in terms of wages. You can't, honestly, I'll, I'll never forget that conversation I was having with the owner and the, um, and the chairman. Before I got on the coach to go back home on a Tuesday night here at West Ham and you've just been beaten 2-1 and, and you've lost Jimmy Bullard. And uh, quality players, you know, he was knocking at the door of England on a regular basis and he, and he recommended Bobby. And the one thing I wanted to take Bobby for, this was, this was a personal thing that myself and, and uh, Brian and, and Steve were talking about. I wanted to get the ball into the final third and keep it there. Um, we had we had lots of things going for us. We had a great mentality defensively. We had a good shape about us. We had the the right people in the right places. We were just starting to invest a little bit more in the in the forward play. And Bobby was going to cost me um, a lot of money from a wage perspective. But he he wanted to, he wanted to come. He actually wanted to come. I met him um, off a train at at, at the whole whole city station. And all Bobby wanted to do was have a look at what's the fishing like here. And you know, obviously, Hull's renowned for fish. But um, it's been three generations of deprivation. You know, the, the fishing industry with a 12-mile radius. I got to know all of these things about the whole people. So albeit you've got guys that have got three generations of families sitting on the terraces, it costs a lot of money to do that, you know. And, and there, was no, there was no fishing industry. But there was, there was obviously um, fishing in the area. And Bobby had heard... Rumors, and that was one of the reasons why he was he was talking to me. And the strangest things like that happen in conversations where you've got to latch onto something that maybe that's the sales pitch there, not the money, not the the, the ambition for the team, not the training ground, not this, that, and the other. The guy's hobby is fishing, and if I could get him to come because of that, perfect. Take me fishing, learn me how to fish. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But. Um, so I nearly got Bobby Zamora, and the reason why I, I didn't take him was um, was for the money that we were going to give Bobby. I could get two players, and the two players that I did eventually sign were Jan Venego of Hesselink uh, and um, Jose Altador. And when okay. I took them yeah. two players in, I took them two players in for the same wage as Bobby Zamora. I was thinking to myself. I know for a fact what Bobby Zamora can do. He can get us into the final third and then we can play some football in the final third. And if we need to recycle the ball and come round, we're used to defending. We can we can defend. We've got midfield players. We can be more creative. Okay, so you're now looking at five and five. Instead of it being six and four attacking, six defending, four attacking, forget about the goalkeeper for the time being. We could actually become a five and five because of his hold-up play. And therefore, that would progress us. If that gets you two places more than finishing 17th, you're going towards the same history as Bolton Wanderers, you know. So we finished 17th the first year. We finished 17th the second year. You've got two two seasons. You've got three seasons of, of Premier League money then. You're starting to invest in better players. So then all of a sudden, when we got to the fourth year in the Premier League, that's what I'm saying, we were getting bored with survival campaigns. Let's start knocking at the door of Europe. That's exactly what I'm talking about. But the investment, one year in the Premier League, Surviving in the Premier League was another 60, 70 million. When I was at Bolton Wanderers, it was 20 million, 23 million or something like that. 60, 70 million, one year surviving in 2008. So if you reinvest that money with better players at the, at the business end of the, of the pitch, you're going to fill houses still. You know, the, the stadium's going to be full and you're going to have more respect from the opposition and, and you're going to play better football ultimately. 
I think we have to talk with Hull. You've mentioned him, Jimmy Bullard. Right? Yeah. <laughs> now, obviously, there was the kind of infamous, famous incident on the pitch with the goal celebration. Now, yeah. I know that Jimmy Bullard is a classic kind of banter, very funny person. How is he to manage, and how did you, how did you handle something like that? And I handled that situation in itself. I thought, you know, it, it sort of got the noose from around my neck. I put, I put the I put the noose around my own neck by doing what I did. I exposed the changing change room, and to expose a group of players that were fairly experienced, you know, George Boateng, for instance, yeah. people like that, you know, it, it it's going to come back to bite you. But if truth be known, I'm not saying that particular incident helped us to survive, but it certainly gave us, it took the pressure. This is what Sam used to teach me as a manager. You've got to try and take the pressure away from the players. Put it on yourself. Well, wow. I put it on them at half time, but then it came on me big time. It came on me big time, you know. So now the players are playing with a little bit less pressure because, well, everyone's looking at them. All the fingers are being pointed at him, which, which allowed them to breathe a little bit more. Now, that is a strategy and a plan that it's, it was a high... It was a high-risk strategy, to say the least. Mm -hmm. But when you've got Jimmy Bullard in your camp, and I didn't know that he was going to do it, but we're at Man City a year later. We'd survived that year, so all the talk about half-time team talks, etc., etc. And we'll go back to Main Road. Uh, Was it called Main Road or was it called the Etihad? I don't know. But we'll go back there, and uh, it's around about the same time of year as well. And lo and behold... They were in the hotel the night before and they came up with this plan that if we score a goal, if it's a winner or if it's an equaliser or it gets us back in the game or whatever, do the half-time team talk. So that was planned behind me, but that ain't a problem. I just look at the I look at the players and uh, we, I think it was about the 75th minute when we got the penalty and Jimmy had scored a penalty and that's how Jimmy was. This is how crazy the guy was. He, he'd forgot about the plan about doing a half-time team. If you if you see his celebration, he runs straight across to the whole city, whole city fans, and then the lads. I said, the, the lads start sitting down around him, and then he starts pointing the finger. Now, the true the true story. I'm grabbing a hold of Richard Garcia. I've not even I've not even witnessed this. I'm doing my own celebration, but I'm thinking about I'm thinking about what changes to make for to get us over the line. We've got 10, 15 minutes to survive here, and um, and don't get me wrong. I wrote down the team. The, I wrote down the team, and, and and we were we were sixteen and a half million pound budget, and they had Robinho up front, which was thirty three million. So he was twice as much when we got beat five. When we got beat five, now all of a sudden they've still got Robinho. They got you know they've got um, Casido, Alano, they had Adebayor. You know they had players that were better than what we were and we're getting a 1-1 draw here so consequently I'm pulling Richard Garcia across and Garcia is now in, in management at the moment and he'll tell you the story he's, he's over in I think Melbourne City and Garcia I'm shouting come here come here and he came across the halfway line <laughs> I just said to Garcia get Bullard out of there go five in the middle of the park, play Jimmy up on up on the top lane on his own. Just get him away from our goal as far as you possibly can, but pack the midfield with five. So I'm telling Richard Garcia to tuck in. I'm telling condense the middle of the park, we'll get Jimmy away from. Not What Jimmy liked to do is like to go and borrow the ball from the centre-half, so get the ball from the goalkeeper. Get him up the far end of the field of play and let him... Just say to Jimmy, you're a number 10. 
you're number 10. If you say the, say the words, Jimmy, you're number 10, oh, I'm having some of this. <laughs> so, so that's exactly how we finished the game. And then BBC, I think it was, shoved the camera and a microphone in my face as I'm walking down the tunnel, um, away from the, the stands, obviously. And they said, uh, so what are you going to do about Jimmy Bullard? And I'm going, what are you talking about? What are you going to do about Jimmy Bullard? Do you think it's? I think it's disgraceful the way he celebrated and making a mockery of the half-time team and this and the other. So they're trying to. They were trying, literally seconds after the final whistle. They're trying to goad me, and I'm like, all I can think about is last year we got beat five-one. This year we've got a point, and we're coming away from the Etihad. Look at the pitch. Look at the quality walking off Man City's pitch, and we've got a point. And all you want to do is go negative. So I walk past them. Didn't finish the interview, walked into the change room. As I walked into the change room, the Man City change room is a split change room. And it's only like, um, it's like a section, sectioned off area for your coaching staff. And all I can hear is my coaching staff are in this area. I'm in the, in, in the change room on my own with the players. And they're all sitting down with a sort of their heads down. And what is wrong? What is wrong with you? We've just got a, we've just got a point. And then all of a sudden, I can hear Brian Orton and Steve Park, and they're they're absolutely crying with laughter because they're watching it on a TV. So, I, I, what is going on here? So then I see this this celebration. That's the first time I saw it. I came back in. The players were like that. What's the reaction going to be like? It's the funniest thing I've seen in my life. It was hilarious. It was hilarious. And I'm just saying. Thank you, Jimmy. You've just got to... The noose around my neck has just loosened a wee bit and I can breathe. Yeah, I, I absolutely love Bullard. And you're right, he was... I think he's a player who was, like, criminally underrated. Incredibly, technically brilliant. Talent, I think yeah. He, he should have... He could have and should have had more opportunities with England, I think. Um, but, yeah, managing him, I can I can imagine, must have been difficult at times because he, he had like, a big personality. Rory, I don't, I don't, I don't want to... Divulge too much information, but he was—he he, was—he was borderline bipolar and and all of these things. He was—he could take a—he could take a change room that way, yeah. but he can also take a change room that way. You know, just the antics of how he was and and this that and the other. But you just had to manage him. You, you yeah. just had to intercept the bad days and maybe I don't know, just send him do something different from what the rest of the lads are doing. You know. Nice. And then to kind of finish, because I'm aware of the time. We uh, after Hull, you then go to Preston North End and South End. Now I think I want to talk about South End a little bit more because this again is where you get you get promotion. And my co-host Adam is a Wickham Wanderers fan, and he does have a question: Did you get lucky against Wickham in the playoff final? Very much. Um, <laughs> I think uh, first half performance was acceptable. Second half performance was acceptable, but you um, you went one 0 up and. Um, in extra time, and it was one of them where, ooh, um, I, I could say, I could say you deserved it, but at the end of the day, I'm not going to say that because at the end, it really is about pressure. It's 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 really about handling yourself on the day, and for us to get a hundred and what was it, 124th minute equaliser, that was the the lucky part. Joe Pickett gets a goal, even the shot. Joe would always hit the target. Joe's a, a goal scorer. He would always hit the target, but the shot, if you look at it, it's scuffed with his left foot and it trickles in past three or four legs and the goalkeeper, I don't know what the goalkeeper's doing, but to get the equalising goal and, and then be on the up uh, for the penalty shootout, yeah, we you can say we got lucky, but I suppose that's football, you know? It really has to be said, that is football in a nutshell. 
Well, you had some really good years at Southend, and I think that, like, seeing again, it's another club now that has been criminally mismanaged and is now in non-league, right, Southend? It's, like, um... You had them up in League One. How was it being at that club, and could you see signs of... <coughs> we were knocking at the club? door. We were knocking at the door of the Championship, and, and the last game of the season, I think, um, this was only to get in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. The last game of the season, we had to win, which we did. I think we beat uh, Bury 1-0. And uh, we just had to do better than Millwall. And unfortunately, I think Millwall won 4-3 or something that day. And it was a crazy end-to-end game that Millwall eventually won 4-3. And they got in the playoffs ahead of us. So we were knocking at the door of the championship. Um, the club, uh, I'm still in dispute where the club's concerned. It's, it's still having its perennial, uh, or shall I say annual, uh, argument with HMRC. And I don't want to go too much into that, but... But when a club's like that, and and uh, it's it's difficult to motivate players, you know, when when they see off-field activity that's going on, and, and it's always public knowledge, um, and then you've got to try and motiv- motivate a group of players that sometimes don't know where the next penny's coming from, you know. So it was tough, but we we got a um, you know Anton Ferdinand and people like that, Nail Ranger. We had some big big boys playing for us, you know. And I'm talking about, I loved the. Uh, if we finish on on South End, I love the um, the fact that Sam's man management skills played a big part in in that changing room because I I thought the one way we're going to get out of this is by by being big, being strong, and having character. And the, the character of our team was way ahead of the of the performance sometimes, you know. But people were afraid. They were, people were looking at them, going, "Wow, how's he how's he managed to sign these players?" And that's probably the same kind of argument where Bolton were concerned. You're signing players that you think shouldn't be playing here, but they are, and they're playing there for a reason. It might be their own career has gone belly up or ting tong or whatever, you know. Um, but you've got them there, and they're representing the club to the best of their ability, and you're, you're trying to get promoted. We were close to the championship, but to see them in the uh, the national league is a bit of a shame, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I think like I recently saw. I think Stan Collymore's gone on board, and they're starting to try and get the club a little bit rising again but Phil firstly I just want to say thank you for your time thanks for this I've really enjoyed that chat before we go I'm just going to very quickly ask you a few quick fire questions that we ask all of our guests and then no I'll problem. let you go I promise right so um, let's start with the best player that you coached the best player I coached was Yuri Yorkayev nice I like that yeah of course it is of course it is um, the stadium you went to with the best atmosphere uh, you have to see the Emirates, I'm afraid. Um, Ooh, I'll take when, that. That's the first time we've had that one. When we um, when we went to Arsenal, I'm only saying the atmosphere because of what we did. You know, yeah. um, we were we were twenty eight to one outside, as in a two horse race. Yeah, that's how that's how low we were thought of, and to go there. And you said earlier about. Um, uh, a winner by uh, Giovanni. Giovanni. Yeah. It wasn't the winner. Was Daniel Cousin? Giovanni. Giovanni got the equaliser, which was a great goal. Great goal. And then we knew we could beat you up at corners uh, or set pieces. We knew. I knew from my Bolton days that that was a way of getting under Arsene Wenger's skin. And Daniel Cousin attacked the near post and and smashed somebody at the near post and it went in the back of the net. So that <laughs> that in terms of an atmosphere for. It to be sixty thousand normally red going crazy, and we should be yeah. like three or four, three or Silent. four nil down at half time. Silent. <laughs> yeah. 
and whole city fans going ballistic. That was probably one of the best moments in the uh, in the Premier League that year. Very nice. What was the best goal you've seen? It's got to be Dean Windus. Um, it's a wonderful technique, and it, it, it's got to be said the pressure. Of 80,000, there's 40,000 at each end. Bristol City turned up that day, we turned up that day, and uh, and Dino scores at the Bristol City end. And, and he, he talked about putting a dagger in somebody's heart. Um, Fraser Campbell got to the by lane with his pace, and then the the presence of mind to see Dean. Dean couldn't catch Fraser Campbell, he, he would have to get on a, in, on a bus to try and catch him. Um, so he was hovering around the edge of the penalty box when. Fraser Campbell had made the byline, so he was 25 yards ahead of... But that, that was the beauty of it, you know? So Dean was hovering around a place where I knew technically this kid could could volley a ball. And uh, and sure enough, for Fraser to pick him out and Dean to smash the net, great goal. Pressure. Yeah, huge, huge goal. And the last question, who was the best manager you faced? The manager you went up against where you thought, oh, God, this, this guy is a different level. It's got to be Alex Ferguson. Um, uh, the, the the respect he commanded um, from everybody, and, and it, it's not just the fact that he was that good at Manchester United. The things that he won, he actually cut you some slack as well. You know, he gave you he gave you uh, if if he saw potential, he actually showed you a lot of respect as well. You know, uh, but as soon as you stepped over the mark, that was it. You were finished. Um, but for Alex Ferguson, um, I don't know. It's just something about him that you would have to say he's, he's one of the greatest managers that's ever lived. And there's been some great managers, you know, Bobby Robson, um, a fellow Jordy, you know, and uh, God rest his soul, one of the greats. Uh, there, there's something about the greats that cut you some slack if you're prepared for the answer, if you know what I mean. So you, you're yes. going to ask a question. You, you you can't ask a stupid question. You've got to ask tough questions. So if you're prepared for a tough answer, you ask a tougher question, you know. And, and these guys were brilliant at, at answering questions. And I used, like a thick Geordie, I used to put my hand up and say, can I say something? Can I say something? <laughs> I'd just always be in somebody's face and I just loved the engagement and loved the encounter. Uh, even though you knew you're probably 95% of the time going to lose the game, you're going to engage with this legend of the game afterwards and you have to uh, pick his brains. How do how do I improve, you know? And, and invariably, you get the answer from these guys, you know? So, so, Alex Ferguson. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Phil. I think that's, we're going to call it a day. And um, so, listeners, viewers, don't forget to like and subscribe and keep an eye out for the rest of our um, Away From Home series as we interview players and managers who played and managed abroad. We will see you next time. Thanks again, Phil. Cheers, Rory. Thank you. Sports Social Podcast Network.